Howdy everyone, it's Pambe, your host here. I hope everybody is keeping it together. You may have noticed the absence of music behind this particular intro, and that's because today's featured guest is friend, recovering anthropologist, science communicator and comedian, Kyle Marion. So instead of music, you will get a little taste of her work doing stand-up. Be warned though, this is absolutely not safe for work, perhaps not an issue given how many people are currently working from home right now. Nevertheless, if there are young ears around, you may want to consider shielding them from some pretty explicit content. Very topically, we'll begin with the opener for a recent show Kyle did on coronavirus. So enjoy this and the rest of the episode chatting with her. Welcome to the stage, your host, Esther Jen and Kyle gathered a hundred people in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> During COVID season. Guys, come okay. each other. That's yeah. how you show up. Uh, but really, the thing that gives me the most anxiety is that I know how many people in the room don't wash their fucking hands. Oh, I don't. <laughs> you guys know for yourselves. Do you have to use soap to count? <laughs> yes. You absolutely do. How many people in the room actually know how to wash their hands properly? Thank you for raising your hands in a dark room. <laughs> this is the comedy show. Please show your participation and appreciation with laughs and claps. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Keep your hands to yourself unless it's consensual. Yeah. Uh, what are we doing today, Esther? What is the show about? The virus. <laughs> the virus and the racism. And to learn about what to do. I exactly. Think. Exactly. I hope I learned. All right, howdy friends. This is your two scientists team coming to you today from the very charming city of Memphis in Tennessee. And our guest today is Kyle Marion. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Uh, I guess I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I lose my voice midway through talking. That would suck. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah. Since a lot of my job is talking. Yes. <laughs> but getting over a cold is, is a thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're actually good. here with our lovely friends from the Taste of Science teams because, woo! So, that was so enthusiastic and like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Of course, because our mics are so good, absolutely nobody heard that. So it, it was like a woo. <laughs> yes. So we have Laura Hamill from Memphis. I, in fact, I'm going to turn the mics around. Everybody else can. Yeah, let's do it. Let's can pass it around. Um, Hi, I'm Laura. I'm the Taste of Science City coordinator for Memphis. Say hello to the mic. Hello. There you go. My name is Nick Allen, and I'm the city coordinator for Taste of Science St. Louis. 
Good evening, afternoon, or morning. My name is uh, a dandy little guy named Ben Pruitt, and I'm the city coordinator for St. Petersburg, Florida. Hello, I'm Angela Ray, and I am not officially here because I work for the CIA. <laughs> David has gone into stealth mode, like he's not even going to introduce himself tonight. Goodness. He's doing his face. He is. So because I'm really, really clever, like I've written my notes on a very dark red paper and it's in black ink and we are currently in a beer garden <laughs> where the lighting is very poor. So this should be good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so we normally start off with an introduction to our guests. So can you tell us, I know you were an anthropologist by training. Yes. So how is it you got into that and what was it that you were studying? Um, so, so I did my undergrad at New York University uh, and I think there's, a, there's kind of a difference between how anthropology like, uh, is done in the UK or uh, outside of the US versus in the US. In the US we get like a four field approach to it in undergrad. So we get taught um, sociocultural, anthro, linguistics, archaeology, and physical anthropology. Uh, but I believe outside it's like separate from archaeology, separate from physical anthro, um, biological ar archaeology, that sort of thing. Um, so that was my undergrad. And uh, I ended up doing a lot of forensic work uh, when I was an undergrad, being trained under Susan Anton at New York University. Um, it was around the time when uh, the World Trade Center recovery stuff was still happening. So as an undergrad, I actually got a chance to, to, to use the learnings that I had in forensic anthropology and physical anthropology uh, to help recover some biological materials from the World Trade Center debris. Uh, and then after that, I was like, I really, I really, <laughs> Doug, <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize for that terrible pun. Um, I really got into the like field work with archaeology and forensics um, and somehow thought it'd be a great idea to do grad school. Uh, so for a little bit, I ended up at Stony Brook University um, studying human evolution, uh, specifically about a tiny little fossil from Indonesia nicknamed uh, Hobbit, which uh, apparently That's such a good name. It's a good name, but we can't use it that much because oh. the Tolkien uh, Foundation is not keen on scientists using a nickname. Boo. Uh, it's a copyright infringement, apparently. Okay. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, so Homo floresiensis. I studied that for a little bit, taught anatomy out at Stony Brook University. Um, and I got involved with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. You guys familiar with it? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of scientists in the US uh, have gotten training through them. Um, in the early days, I got involved with them and realized that there's a lot of passion I had for communicating science on top of teaching and on top of research. So follow that track. Uh, and then my CV goes, I end up in Edinburgh for a master's in science communication where I also encountered comedy and science uh, with a community there called Bright Club Comedy uh, which has been running for over 10 years started at UCL University College London with Steve Cross uh, 
and just Go had UCO. a UCO. Yeah, Brit <laughs> British folk. <laughs> um, so I got my PhD. Was it really? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Now you do. Yeah. Did you encounter Steve Cross in Bright Club while you were I there? I did not. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of how I got started with other sorts of informal psychom, um, particularly stand-up comedy. Uh, okay. But now a lot of what I do is live events, uh, science events, and comedy production and performance. Okay. So, yeah. Wow, that's quite something to follow. Um, I feel like a bit of a fraud up here. My name is Kyle, and I have a bit of a confession to make. I am a recovering anthropologist. <laughs> so for the past eight years of my life, I, I was actually doing a lot of my work studying human evolution, looking for fossils, working with archeologists and paleontologists, studying a hobbit. And last year I decided to pack up my things and change career paths, brighter pastures and move to Edinburgh. <laughs> um, but in that process of packing everything, I, I actually found an old journal from my very first archaeological excavation. Um, it's really cute. Uh, I was such a noob. I knew nothing <laughs> about the real life. And I would actually like to share uh, my, my entry from my first night of my first ever archaeological dig. So you bear with me. My dear Indy, <laughs> I hope that's okay. I figured I've known you all my life watching your trilogy. I feel I can forgo the formalities of calling you Dr. Jones. <laughs> Bro, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you go around the world discovering perfectly preserved temples, run straight through them without as much as a picture to document your discovery, then run off with the gold as the whole place crumbles to pieces. Yes, that gold idol does belong in a museum, but Jesus H. Christ, what about the temple? Or the damn Holy Grail? You didn't even take notes, man. I get that you have tenure. <laughs> And fair enough, you had to go kill the Nazis, so time was limited. But what the heck? You made it look so easy. You made it look so exciting. You lied to me, Indy. So you've basically like whizzed through eight of my questions. We could just stop the oh, podcast cool. here. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, hey, let's keep it's drinking. Been great, thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's no, no. Let's go back and fill some of the details. So, yeah. I mean, given that. We should explain that the Alder Center is actually set up by the actor Alan Alder. Yeah, he's a great guy. He is. He's just like so lovely. I mean, like Fred Rogers science communication. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Um, such a great guy. Uh, it's funny because I've heard his story a long time ago of how he ended up starting that like SciComm space. Mm hmm. You know, this, I forget how long they've been doing it now, but when I got involved with them, it was like year four of them doing actual like coursework with the program with, um, with scientists, grad students out at Stony Brook University. And he was saying how like he just had a chat with a dean at mm -hmm. one point and he was just like, 
wouldn't it be great if you taught your academics to be more empathetic? <laughs> um, I mean, that wasn't like verbatim, but that's what I got out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, wouldn't it be funny if no? Um, but yeah, and it started from there. Uh, and I think they've done such a great job of influencing science communication across the U.S. from when they started. And it all comes from having such a great name um, and great vision for what you can do with science. Yeah. Um, and this idea of like what empathy can be like through communicating your science. In yeah. A way. I mean, there's nothing like having an amazing patron to kind of push forward an idea. Yeah. Really lovely guy. Has so many MASH stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he does. Um, so then, given this amazing resource you had at Stony Brook, what mm. was it that made you go to Edinburgh instead to do this Masters in SciComm? Um, so I was coming to a point where, I mean, I had a National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship when I started at Stony Brook University, which is like a big deal. Oh, yeah. As a, as a, as a grad student, you know... Um, to, to get that kind of funding to do your research, but also the freedom to not have to worry about making ends meet on how piddly kind of money you get as a grad student, right, for doing your TA work and um, doing your teaching. And at the time at Stony Brook University on Long Island, which isn't that cheap, our mm-hmm. stipend as grad students to do our coursework and to teach at the same time and do research was 17000 a year. Woo! 17,000. That's like below the, I mean, that that's poverty level, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's weird because like you would joke around with grad students about how, hey, huh, isn't it funny that we would qualify for food stamps? And that's like stuff that you make fun of, but is the reality of a grad student um, and probably of many grad students still today. I mean, yeah. it's been a while since I've I've been in that grad world, but, you know, it's no secret that it's kind of ridiculous how Mm. little you get paid for the value you give to university. It feeds into this whole narrative of how, you know, it's kind of like the scientific equivalent of suffering for your art. It's like, oh, this is my passion, so I will do it. And apparently I'll do it for less than minimum wage. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, who, who knows who benefits, but it does feed off of the the uh, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailedness of fresh meat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, grad students who are like, I can change the world. <laughs> and then you come out of it and you're like, ha, that was hilarious, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you still can. We yes. are in St. Jude's area here in this Memphis, is true. to be fair. This is true. A so truly inspirational <laughs> institution. But just saying, there's a lot of fields in academia <laughs> where it's like, oof. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but yeah, you went to Edinburgh. So then I I ended up in Edinburgh only because I wanted to make a leap out of academia when all of the time that I've spent in grad school have only ever prepared me for that streamline Mm -hmm. of becoming an academic, of teaching anatomy, which I absolutely loved and I thought I was great at it. Um, And I needed to figure out a stepping stone. And it felt like a master's was a good way to do it. Mm -hmm. But at the time when I was looking, there weren't any master's in science communication in the U.S. at all. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Not any that had clout, right? right? Um, Not any that I knew of. And so I looked to the U.K. where, beyond my knowledge, right? Like in the U.S., I only knew Alda Center was doing science communication stuff. 
in the UK, I find out that there's been over 10 years of science communication as a field. And so it made more sense to me to make, to figure out what programs would work for science communication in the UK. But I specifically chose Edinburgh because I ended up there on a research study uh, project for, for trying to answer this question of whether or not this Homo floresiensis species was uh, an abnormal, quote unquote, abnormal modern human or an actual like fossil ancestor species cousin of Homo sapiens, our species. And I ended up there because there's not that many collections, medical collections of um, uh, pathologically, uh, pathological skeletons. Uh, and so I fell in love with it. I spent three days there, saw so much history. It was like, holy cow, that's the Bram Stoker Dracula like castle, what? <laughs> um, thought it was just so fun. Like, uh, you know, took tours of it, but also like fell in love with the, the history of medical museums and mm -hmm. the history of like the stories that those museums told and the, the amount of information that like the museums themselves shared to the public in terms of, you know, the narrative of what it took to get to anatomy and medicine today mm -hmm. and the British contribution to it. Um, so I was like, fuck it. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Flip it. <laughs> uh, I'll just spend a year and a half like doing a master's in Edinburgh because why not? They had a new program and I just wanted to be in Scotland. So ended up there and turned out to be one of the best decisions I've made. Um, largely because Scotland is, has the, like Edinburgh in particular has that heart of, of academia and arts community. And you would know that if you have ever heard of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Yeah. Um, and like just the way that their programs work, you also got a lot of like hands-on experience as you're doing your, you know, learning mm -hmm. in your master's program. Yeah. So yeah. So I know one of your particular passions with regards to the way you do science communication is comedy. And you mentioned that you heard about or I guess you familiarize with this yourself with it through Bright Club. Can you tell us a little bit about their history and how you got involved? Yeah, so um, there was a night when I think it was like the first or second week of my master's program and like my cohort and I were trying to just like figure out something fun to do, get to know one another. And a friend was like, hey, there's a science like academic comedy night. Let's give it a try, Bright Club. Um, and it's at this place called The Stand comedy club and they just have like science comedy nights so why don't we go and I went and it was just so fun the thing that really turned me on to using stand-up comedy like to communicate other aspects of um, other aspects of, of, of your life as a researcher was one of the last performers that night and she had just I can't remember her name but she had just defended her dissertation uh-huh and she spent eight minutes on that stage, essentially giving the middle finger to every single person who's, who was involved <laughs> in her dissertation defense, being like, I did it! Fuck it! <laughs> God damn it, why is dissertation defense so fucking weird? Um, and it was just that, like ranting about the process of a dissertation defense in just like, such clear-cut language in a way that was like, yeah, I don't need to hide this stuff. Like, also, why do we normalize how fucked up the academic system is? 
only because we're protecting our fucking CVs. Like, but that's that doesn't prepare the actual grad student to strategize against that. Mm -hmm. Also, isn't it hilarious? Right? We all experience the same thing, but no one talks about it. Yeah. Or we experience the same thing and say, huh, we had to do it. Oh my God, besties. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Like, uh, and so it was just so great to see her do that. And immediately I was like, oh, I got shit to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I just signed up afterwards. And so October 2014 was like my first time doing it. And I had a lot to say about Indiana Jones <laughs> as someone who'd worked in archaeological, paleontological field sites for a long time and the American Museum of Natural History for a while and knew its secrets inside. And as a woman of color being like, well, shit, <laughs> there's some fucked up stuff back there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, how funny is it that Indiana Jones is both fucked up but also the actual like analogy of what the history of that kind of world is? Um, so yeah, that was kind of my start. But turns out that like, I mean, that was my opening to Bright Club. But turns out the Bright Club had been around for over 10 years and that it started at UCL with Steve Cross. But it started as this idea of the university being like, okay, hey, we wanna, we wanna like tap into this community of Londoners who will not seek out a university experience. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna, they're not, you're not gonna find them in those TEDx lectures yeah. at the university. So how are we gonna engage those 18s to 35s in a way that's also not painfully, financially unbearable, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Turns out it was comedy. And so with the help of, I believe, the Wellcome Trust, which is a huge funder in the UK for promoting public health um, and public science communication, public engagement, um, they got a start. And they created a program that they just shipped out to all the other universities. And, you know, it's been growing since then. And what I love about it, too, is like it's been going for over 10 years and every city is allowed to have their own flavor. Like and I don't know what it was about Edinburgh, but it felt so much when I did my stuff there and also because probably because of the Edinburgh Fringe, it felt so much more like stand up which when I eventually got my way around to going down to London and visiting UCL for one of their Bright Club nights, it felt very different. Mm -hmm. And in, in chatting with other people who've been doing the programming for Bright Clubs all over the UK and like other people who've done programs, et cetera, it's also different in every city. And it's nice to have that kind of uh, a difference in, in creating a community of comedy around academic stuff, thinky stuff. So yeah. So to anyone who says, uh, what have, why do scientists think they're funny? What would you say that that connection is? Because it just seems that scientists are, they're very serious people. Like how does that are become translated into comedy? Have we, have, do people even know what gets said around, you know, like the lunchroom when people have just read the new thing out of nature and they're like, oh, yeah. really? I, I really? deliberately set this up as a, a scientific stereotype <laughs> right? for you to dismantle. The, it's hilarious because like I'll have a one-liner joke about reviewer number two and an entire room of scientists are pissing themselves and it's like, I didn't even specify who that was, but yes. you know. Yes. We know. <laughs> tenure track jokes. Exactly. Tenure track jokes always make a difference. Uh, yeah. Repeat your question one more time. <laughs> <laughs> so given that people think that science is this very dry subject, how do you bring it to a wider audience through the format of comedy? 
is it dry though? Or it's only dry because of how we deliver it, right? Like, I think, I think about all the, my experiences in learning about science in school versus my experiences doing the process of science and the comedy of human error in actually doing it versus the packaged, clean, informational, factual version that you get in the textbooks. Versus like the wonderful stories that people write, like, that science journalists create about science, right? Makes the biggest difference. And it's that thing of like, how do you contextualize information? Because no one really connects internally deeply with just facts. I mean, we kind of know that with the way the politics in the whole entire freaking world seems to be going. Yeah. Right. And we had to learn that the hard way. Our hubris as academics and intellectuals learn that the hard way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it ju it's just a matter of being like, hey, you're allowed to misbehave. And in this space of using comedy to translate your to, to tap back into your science and all the other things that you actually do in order to produce a journal article, right? Like, how else can you communicate that so people have a better idea of the process instead of just celebrating the result? Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, this is something that I feel like we really need to address as part of Taste of Science, which is the, the making of the sausage. Yeah. Because I think people have very unrealistic expectations of what science can do because they get this this shiny packaged thing at the end of it, they see a journal article, a, a news piece, or even, I mean, this is something I mentioned in a blog post recently, even our Taste of Science events. Like people show up and the scientists are like, oh yeah, this is a super exciting thing and da-da. Whereas it feels like that, that kind of removes the scientists from the actual process. And so, yeah, they're wondering why, why don't we have a cure for cancer yet? Right. Or why right. hasn't that been fixed yet? Yeah, it's interesting because in, in the process of creating, like practicing comedy and like seriously delving into writing comedy, testing it out in different rooms, trying to figure out, okay, I have so many seconds to get your attention, this audience that like, there's no reason why they have, they owe me this time. And I can't take that for granted. Yeah. And I think as academics, you forget that because you're taught the meritocracy thing of like, you earned it. You earned this lectureship that people need to listen to you. And, you know, you, you kind of forget you have to still continue to earn someone's attention. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of being able to play and play with how you talk to people yeah. about the things that you care about. I think... There's, um, I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, especially the ones of like, you know, how does the sausage get made? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some of my favorites are Let's, Let's Talk About Sets uh, podcast and also uh, Vulture's uh, Good Ones podcast. And it's so great to be able to look into the mind of a seasoned comedian. What did it take? Like, what is their take on making great comedy? And like, what did it take them to get to that point? where they're earning those spots because mm -hmm. they work hard, yeah. right? Like, sure, there are people out there who are whose comedy don't work for you anymore, um, but they worked hard to earn those spots at some point, and everything is niche. 
Yeah. So like, you know, there are conservative comedians who work really hard on those comedy sets. There are liberal comedians who work really hard on those comedy sets. And it's all about the niche that they've found and being able to like really perform well in those niches. I think it's kind of interesting to think about um, how some of the greatest comedians like uh, Gary Goleman right now is one of my favorites. And what he said in terms of in a recent like Vulture podcast, he was talking about how like um, you kind of as a performer, as a comedian who's worked hard to earn your spot, right? You you kind of are convinced that like what you find funny, you know your audience will find funny. So what's it going to take for them to be in the same mindset as you? And that's all that an, a setup is. So that you set that up in the the shortest amount of time in that shared kind of vocabulary that you have with this audience that you've created so that they immediately know the next thing you're going to say is hilarious as fuck, <laughs> right? Like that is the that is like the magic of using the process of comedy to be better at connecting with your audiences as little time in as little time as possible. And so it's interesting to me to be able to try and like figure out how to how to share that with science with scientists with academics there's no reason why you need to spend 25 minutes to say three minutes worth of material (laughs) just care about your audience enough and know that like hey they're not idiots they want to care as much as you do you just have to figure out how to say it to them so you're not wasting their time and also my goodness conferences Oh, right. Yes. Why does everyone have to go over their time? Right? Everyone. Um, tenured people, specifically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, there's there's something about being able to get to that point of caring enough about your idea. Yeah. And communicating that idea in a creative way that gets the, your audience to understand why you care so much about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like the whole thing of Seinfeld being like, what's the, what's the deal with blah, blah, blah. And you're <laughs> like, well, you know what? <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Why are you laughing? You know, like, <laughs> just why is that so funny? And it's because he's laid out that logic of like, this is also why I know you will care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if at conferences, part of the problem is that we are captive audiences for each other. It's not like we're... I think it's accountability. You think? I think, I mean, if your moderators are people who are in, you know, are grad students or like, uh, you know, uh, not yet, like the same level of echelons, quote unquote, as like a speaker, how is that speaker going to, you know, respect... Oh, I've seen senior chair people do it as well, though. That's fair. Like, they're just kind of like, eh... We can let them carry on talking. Like this guy's famous. Where's the accountability? Like that's true. Who's gonna be like? I'm sorry. I showed you the light. You had one minute left, and you still kept going. You're not coming back. (laughs) I mean, that's the that's the the stakes that comedians have to have, right? It's a living thing, right? Like it's it's their living, and it's their chance at a next stage, the bigger stage, the bigger audience. If they go over that time, it's disrespectful to the other comedians, and they feel it. Yeah. And the producers of the show and the bookers of those shows feel it. So where is that kind of accountability, right, for conferences? And also, like, 
who's who's showing these academics that like you don't you don't need all that time to prove your point people could just read your paper like you know why read the paper when you can just have them download it and actually just tell them why the bits that they care about so i don't know i mean it's been a while since i've been at an academic conference um and it's also been a very long time since i've been in an academic conference where i walked out of it feeling like that was actually worth my time and not feeling drained with just a ton of notes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is why people spend so much time drinking at the end of the day. Exactly. But all the good stuff come out during the drinking. So yeah. we're going to let people interrupt us with questions. Okay, so you were talking about the differences between, say, doing an open mic stand-up night or um, going to a scientific conference and actually presenting your work and how the communities behave a little differently. There's a high level of respect for time and for energy, um, whereas it sounds like you don't really see that in the scientific community. And do you feel like there is a stronger sense of community, camaraderie, um, and just like I've got your back among comics rather than among scientists? And if that's so, then what do you think that is? That's a great question. Um, I do think, I mean, I like every every comedian comes up in a different ecosystem of comedy, depending on where they are. And some people are luckier to come up through more supportive spaces than others. Um, and so I think there's a lot of parallels. You have to create the community you want to thrive in, but also put yourself in spaces where it's, it's, more risky because those spaces of failure are absolute spaces of learning. Um, but comedy is hard. Like people are vying for, you know, the same one spot at a show. Like there, you know, I mean, New York City is a little bit different where I am at because there's just a million places. There's shows every night. You can get your time. And this is why a lot of comedians all over the country will be like, you know, go to New York to learn your voice, but go to LA to become famous because the people who will see you and book you on the Conan shows, et cetera, are gonna be in LA, Mm -hmm. but the ones who will help you find your voice and get you all of those practices is gonna be New York City. Um, So it's really the community that you create. And I think that's the same with what we're seeing now in the science communities online, uh, on Twitter, the the camaraderie that people are finding with the practice spaces. There just aren't practice spaces in academia because you have, like, who sees the value in that necessarily when you have other priorities as an academic, either writing the papers, writing the grants, teaching, um, networking. So it's it's hard to to demonstrate to people the value of those practice spaces until you put yourself in those spaces. Um, So I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, It's not to say that like comedy is like, you know, a lot more uh, collegial because that's (laughs) not necessarily the case. I do think that that improv comedy spaces tend to be more collegial because the format of improv comedy is in a way where you have to create together Mm -hmm. in order to succeed. That is the root of improv comedy. Um, 
whereas in stand-up comedy you're in it for yourself so and that's also why there is just as high a rate of um, mental health issues in stand-up comedy because it's very isolating unless you found your community that you can write together with test ideas with because a lot of people will still be very protective of their ideas you know again this sounds just like science exactly yeah yeah that you're you're worried about getting scooped you're worried about your jokes getting stolen people steal jokes all the time um people steal ideas all the time um i have stories that i can't tell but you know um i know a lot of people out there have personal stories of of grants being stolen from under them because somewhere higher higher up it messes with their bigger grant yeah you know um so so there are tons of stories in science that way but there's no place to share it yeah and not in a way that that doesn't hurt you i think that's where i find the value of using comedy and Mm -hmm. the catharsis of using comedy because then you can make fun of a system instead of just pointing out this one thing yeah and it's the you know like that's how i use comedy especially with with science and academia to point out inequities with race with culture gender um sexuality uh and owning up to the freaking dark ass history of science like you know because it it matters to my community i'm not gonna hide the fact that like the the progress of gynecology was on the ba- on the vaginas of of unconsenting African American women of yeah. black women slaves, right? Because um, that's absolutely important to the stories of people who are affected and continue to be affected with inequity in healthcare, mm-hmm. right? Um, and with the the researchers, scientists, medical professionals who are of that community, right? Um, but with comedy, you can at least have catharsis, but also point out this is fucked up stuff. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I think that's uh, that's one of the big things that I love about using comedy too is that the the it, it flips the power dynamics. It, a, a performer on the stage, if you're taking the stage, it's not like you a lecturer. You're the the higher power in that room. Yeah. A performer doing comedy, the higher power is your audience. And so, you know, it, y- you're creating an, you're creating a, a space with them together of laughter and the moments that you lose them, it, it's their power, right? Yeah. But also, you, it's kind of a back and forth. It feeds how you create um, the jokes and how you connect with people, but you're constantly actually accountable to that audience. Are we? Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. We about to get some clitoral action. (laughs) Yeah, girl. Get it, Tina. (laughs) Oh, oh, we taking socks off now, Dan? Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of grinding. I like being included in the sex. Now focus on me, Dan. Huh? Boobies? Yeah, girls. (laughs) Get some. (laughs) Isn't it funny how you two aren't even sexual organs and you get all the action? (laughs) No, I'm happy for you. (laughs) 
My turn. Yeah, bring his hand down to me, Tino. Yeah. Oh. comedy and how comedy can enact social change and it just brought to mind Hannibal Burris and how he um, really focused on what Bill Cosby had done I mean a lot of women had already come forward and said hey he did this to me a whole lot of them and then it got brushed under the rug and when Hannibal Burris made it part of his act right and legitimately it's funny the way he placed it but it was still like what the fuck's going on how can this happen how can you still care about him um, do you feel like there's a lot more opportunity for creating social change within comedy? And then there's also this kind of feeling that, well, comedy's not really supposed to be political. It's not really supposed to be for that. So how do you, I guess, balance that line between let's be funny, let's be accessible, but let's also create a positive impact in society? So that's a really great question, Angela. Um, I do think, like, this is where, so for me, I mean, this like that stuff with Hannibal Burris, right? He wouldn't have known to trust his voice if he hadn't gone through the process of, of finding that voice through comedy, right? That's years of practice and years of experience, but also knowing that uh, you can punch up, this idea of punching up, you can call out injustices through art. Comedy is still art. Comedy just happens to be the art form of the masses, the quote-unquote common person. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing with storytelling. Storytelling can be used to write injustices. Um, mural arts can be used to point out injustices. And that is because that's the power of art. Uh, I do think, to your point of you know, him being you know, aware enough and strong enough to be like, no, you can't silence me because I can make fun of this because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that as humanity we choose this instead. Of, you know, we choose to, to to spotlight the great things that the Cosby Show has done to the community, as opposed to you know, uh, agreeing that like that was a horrible human being who had a lot of power, right? And I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, analogies and parallels in the world of Me Too STEM right mm -hmm. now. But I think it sucks when you allow things to happen and not call it out. I mean, that's what's so great about what makes comedy so funny sometimes is that somebody on the stage just said what you were thinking. Yeah. It's just that simple to point it out instead of silencing it. That's funny. Um, but a space is still a space. Like, the, the people in a room will still create the rules in that space. And so... You know, if it's a bunch of drunk people who don't want to be thinking, they're not going to want to think about that stuff and it won't be funny. If it's, you know, a, a friend of mine in Gotham Comedy Foundation runs a comedy show in uh, a chemotherapy space at Mount Sinai 
and they have ground rules for what can be done and said in that space to keep the people who are in treatment laughing without stressing them out, right? And that's because the space sets the tone. And as a professional comedian, a professional speaker, you care about that space, right? So you bring the right kind of material for those people because your one goal is to make people laugh. And so that's going back to this idea that everything is a niche. And I think you become more sensitive as a performer, as a public speaker, the more that you put yourself in those spaces and the more that you allow yourself to fail in those spaces. And I just don't think academia is at that place that allows for that. And typically the spaces of failure is like, the hot spot, the moment of dissertation, the moment of lecturing, there's no practice space that allows yeah. you to get to that point unless you've created a community that allows for that. Um, so yeah, it also makes me think about, you know, how many people are writing their, uh, their papers and talks for a conference the night before, right? Because they haven't found time to practice or write it beforehand. And there's just not that ethos of like, I got to I got to test it out to fail to figure yeah. out how to make it tight in yeah. the performance. Which well, is ironic you know. because science itself is all about testing and failing. Mm -hmm. Like the actual practice, the experiments. Oh, but the career of science isn't. Yeah, this is true. Right? Yeah. But uh, the idea that you understand that this idea is perfectly normal under this circumstance, but to yeah. expand that idea to... The, yeah. the kind of the larger field of the work. I'm always talking about how like, you know, if, if academics and scientists, STEM professionals in particular, actually approach their jobs, and there was a culture of approaching your jobs as the way that you approach the process of science, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it would be a little bit healthier. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but that there is a there is a chasm in that reality <laughs> like mm -hmm. you know because you have so many priorities and boxes to tick and the the timeline etc like it it makes it really difficult yeah but yeah i don't know i don't know how long or what it'll take for me to convince programs all over the world to like have open mic spaces <laughs> Right, interdisciplinary open mic spaces like the one I, I've helped create at Caveat in New York City with Scratch Paper. Because the people who are in those space value it in such a different way and get something out of it compared to when they go to other open mics or when they go back to their academic communities. Um, and it's just that thing of like, how do you find your voice in a way that isn't as frightening? How do you get over your nerves in the way that's like uh, a little bit more, um, uh, a little safer than the actual day of uh, uh, of presenting mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but it would be great if people actually took that initiative. So is this dream of getting everybody into science comedy and improv the reason why you set up your own program, which is the Symposium Academic Stand-Up? I think... My bigger dream about it is kind of just pushing on this idea and shaking up this idea that academia has to look and sound a particular way. Um, I think I, I think it'd be great if there was a university where like the the lectures were all stand up. <laughs> you know, that sounds awesome. You're like learning. You're like learning something in in a stand-up space and and like the kind of 
the kind of uh, exams that you could have that is like completely different from the stress of, you know, the rote memory type stuff. Um, recently, I did a, a show with Science Riot in New York City for the New York Academy of Sciences. And one of the things that I shared with that 300 plus audience was that with using comedy to translate science, communicate science to that audience, we're also giving the audience a different way of translating it to their community. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense for the people that they actually interact with outside of the ivory tower, right? Because like who else is gonna care about the dictionary definition? Yeah. We're all into the urban dictionary definition these <laughs> days, so. I like that phraseology. So David sent us a bunch of questions and one of the things I was thinking was, your, does your anthropological background mean that you study your audience? And it's do you extract something about them during your performances? I do. But I think all comedians do. I mean, for me, because I'm an analytical person, I've always been a methods kind of gal for mm -hmm. science. Uh, I pick up on when people laugh mm -hmm. and I wonder why. Because when you laugh, it's because you recognize something or related to it either universally or personally um, in terms of like human failure, right? That's, that's what comedy is. And I wonder what it was that they connected to. Um, a silly joke about the F word. Oh my God, the F word. I'm going to break the tension in this room and just say it out loud and it's Fahrenheit. <laughs> to a room of scientists is such a science dad joke. Yeah. But I know why it connects is because no one uses Fahrenheit. And it's kind of ridiculous that America continues to. Um, but... Yeah, like it's things like that of like people laughed, but what is it that you were connecting to in that moment of laughter? Um, and I think that's where, like to me, my anthropological I can't I can't uncouple myself or consciously decouple what is the term uh -huh. myself from 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 being that weird ethnographer in the room. Like I know for a fact that if I'm creating a space, the space has rules that's like you know the language that people use has rules that is an anthropological linguistic thing and it makes me more sensitive to this you know how people use jargon how people use slang how how people police each other in terms of tone in academia um, how that goes against people of color how that goes against minorities um, the kind of language that's used to promote certain kinds of historical stories in science that is so unsensitive to indigenous people, for example, or is trans-exclusionary, or, you know, like there are all these ways that you as a scientist, you as an academic, don't think about how the language you use impacts you mm -hmm. because this is just how you've been taught it, right? Yeah. And I think in playing with language that way through comedy, and seeing how audiences connect with it, it, it gives such a different perspective to science communication for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, you know, like, a as, a, as an expat 
And as a woman of color, you know, like I'm sure there are little quirks, like Britishisms that you might say that feel weird, but like <laughs> all or, the time, or terms that make you laugh because it's like, oh, these weird Americans. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, well, I did correct you in your pronunciation of herbs earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I will live and die with herbs and eggplant. I'm sorry. <laughs> it doesn't even look like an egg. It does look like it an egg. It doesn't look like an Have egg. Have you seen the Wikipedia page? When it's new, it's white and little tiny egg. Just saying. The Wikipedia page. Let's let's pull it up. <laughs> yeah. It's an aubergine. Cilantro, which is different from the seed. Yeah, because the seed is coriander. Yeah. Whereas the plant is cilantro. I don't it's know who did that. You still want to be Italian. <laughs> That's what it is. Maybe. Maybe. So I think one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is the fact that there are some kind of sketches and uh, nights of comedy you do where it feels like you're deliberately trying to make your audience uncomfortable. In fact, I think the event that I went to, I can't remember what it was called now. Um, Blackademia. That's it. Hell yeah. And that was a February show on uh, yes. Black History Month, and nobody else in New York City uh, was doing a black like, History Month show unless it was run by black producers. Yeah. Which I find quite amazing. Ridiculous. Yeah. Because it happened to, you know, like my show was around the same week as, uh, as Valentine's Day. So obviously oh. everyone was like, sex over history? Yeah. <laughs> Writing history? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a great show. I, and it had such a great turnout. And I do hope, like, it's funny because the Symposium Academic Stand-Up, it's thematic because I want to be able to test ideas that I'm hoping other people will run with. Um, or I can, like, push for more versions of it. Um, and one of those, th like, more recently, the past, last month, uh, was uh, how museums are not neutral, mm -hmm. aka museums have a history of racism, yes. if people didn't know, um, <laughs> and inequity, and continue to do so. And uh, so, uh, like, just changing that narrative of how you can paint the picture on academia that puts the power back into the hands of the people they took it from like feels so powerful to me because then I can make people laugh and learn in such a different way from just making people not think mm -hmm. and laugh. I think there's a difference there. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, like the, the, the Blackademic show, uh, I had such great comedians from all different academic backgrounds uh, and just like celebrating the multitudes that a person can carry, you know what I mean? It, it just felt so, it makes me feel good as a producer, but also I feel like I'm creating something that needs to continue to grow. I just don't know how to keep it growing yet. Yes. Yeah. Funding, because you maybe? can't clone yourself and no one's waiting there to give you millions of dollars right. in order to... But I mean, I'm not the only one. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, it's amazing how many people I've connected with who... I've empowered to like see themselves in a new light, you know, um, to use academia more in their stand-up if they're yeah. comedians, or to to use humor um, more in their communications for their academic communications or science communications. Um, 
it feels good because it feels it, like it comes from a place of like, you know, fuck the system. <laughs> the, ivory, the ivory tower doesn't need to be so ivory, you know? No. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. It feels good. But I'm hoping that, uh, like, like the, the black academia stuff, um, which is, like, such a great term, like, ha- hashtag black academia, black academics, please keep, like, you know, like, check out those hashtags because they highlight such incredible people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the thing of dark comedy that I love is there's something about making privileged audiences assholes tense up. <laughs> <laughs> And then you release them like magic and it feels so good when everybody's like, ha ha ha. Okay, I learned something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many people do you suppose just stay uncomfortable about the whole thing? Do you think they carry it home with them? No. No, I mean, people who buy tickets to my show <laughs> usually know what they're in for. But it's also the, the thing of a roller coaster ride that you can have with comedy. Mm-hmm. You know? It'll make you think... And I'm hope I'm hoping even if it doesn't make you rethink your life or your perspective that moment that at some point a few weeks later when you open the refrigerator <laughs> door you it hits you or the the moments where you rethink on your interactions with other people your the way that you teach your your research or share your research to other people it hits you like that's kind of what I love about the lasting impact of of laughter is like it's not just immediate and you know sometimes it's much later down the line or it comes up on conversation naturally because people are like oh yeah I've heard about this I went to a comedy show you know blah 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 um and I think that's what I love about using entertainment in particular too Mm -hmm. with science communication that You're sneaking that in the information. Yeah, the the power that that pop culture and entertainment has in in shaping a space. I mean, we're in Memphis, right? Like we, we just went to to Sun City Studios and learned about how you know one random studio in the middle of the country changed culture in yeah. such a deep way. Uh, Elvis, BB King, you know, like the history of R and B blues um and it's all because of of this one tiny space so that ripple is a effect, tiny space it's a tiny space yeah. yeah uh so yeah it's it's quite it's 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 kind of amazing and it's not the sort of thing that's easily measurable so to speak but you do measure it and how much people pay for a yeah, show that's true and pack in the house or share the laughs you yeah. know yeah well, it seems like a very inspirational ending, which is, you know, you can have this incredible impact from a tiny space. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I didn't get to talk about it too much, but it, I think one of my favorite things about having found my, pa- my, my, my path through comedy is turning my pain into something valuable. Yeah. Right? Time. Like it wasn't all for nothing. No. Pain plus time isn't just storytelling sometimes it's stand-up comedy careers so you know uh but yeah who knows i'd love to empower more minorities to to use that to use the power that's been used against them instead of being used to use the system instead of the system using them sort of thing i like that yeah so 
if people are interested, can they just reach out to you and say, hi, I'm interested. How do I get into this? Yeah, they can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Kyle Marion at K-Y-L-E-M-A-R-I-A-N or send me an email, academicstandup at gmail.com. Yeah, we'll stick all the links on our page yeah. when your podcast comes out. Sounds good. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. Thanks it's, for your time. Yeah, it's really lovely that we get to spend time with you and to actually hear about your work in this format. is And come to the show. Cool. Yes, <laughs> There's more dirty details at a yes. show. <laughs> People in New York should definitely seek you out. All right, very cool. Thank you. Thanks. paleontological digs in Spain with the Atapuerca group and also Pinilla del Valle. But one of the things that they do at the end of summers is usually like open the doors and then people from towns nearby can just check out what people are doing as if it was a zoo, you know. And it's a lot of fun, but one of my first years there, the director was like, wouldn't it be a great idea if the foreigners in the team led the tours in Spanish? I mean, I can speak Spanish fairly well, uh, and but it's not like science Spanish. Um, so I did it. We're going through all the different sites in this place, and I get this family, the multi-generational family. There's like five generations 
grandparents, great grandparents, young children, uh, etc. And I'm giving them a tour. So yeah, we hit the first archaeological paleontological site, and I'm explaining it. And the old man in the group just like points his cane at me, and he's like, "Pero pa qué? Por qué me quitáis todo esto?" And he's just like, "Why are you taking?" all of this away from me and my family you're just digging away like all of the hills that I used to like I have all of my history and my childhood here and now none of my great grandkids can play here why and in Spanish I was just like for science <laughs> I mean like wh who prepares you to be like uh, hey, hey uh, here's the whole history of how science is done sir okay excuse me uh, it's also for a museum thank you you're welcome <laughs> and but that was like really one of my earliest memories of like really fucking up big time and also not knowing what to say because hi I'm a Filipino <laughs> and if that man didn't realize that uh, his country also colonized my country and erased a shit ton of our culture so it's kind of ironic that he's talking to me about erasing his history you know what I mean <laughs> But that's not something that I'm going to say to an old man at the moment where I'm just like, science is good. <laughs> right? And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks to Kyle for somewhat ironically battling through a cold to record this episode. She and her project, The Symposium Academic Stand-Up, are all over social media. We'll have links in our show notes so you can follow her amazing work on inclusive science communication. Thank you to Laura Hamill and the rest of the Taste of Science Memphis crew for showing us a great time in Bluff City. Thank you to Ben Pruitt, Nick Allen and Angela Ray for meeting up with us for our Taste of Science retreat. Thank you to Esther Chen at the beginning and Woody Fu coming up for allowing us to feature them in this podcast too. Finally, thank you all for listening, washing your hands, staying away from each other and just being kind. fucking thing the cdc has already said it's not if coronavirus comes to america it's when it's already here it's in rhode island and in washington who's gonna stop this thing freaking mike pence i don't fucking think so the idea to me of coronavirus in new york is terrifying wow here i am on broadway rubbing elbows with the stars let me prove that i can be a bigger deal than stars hit it yeah Coronavirus in the fucking building, aka COVID-19, aka Young Pandemic. Yo, masks up, yeah, masks up, baby. Let's get it, gonna get famous. My reach is outrageous. A triple threat king, I rap and I sing and I'm highly contagious. Yeah, I'm coast to coast, I'm already global. You want my crown, I'm in Chinatown. Fuck you up like Chernobyl. Uh, I'm taking over. Yeah, that's what I told ya. I'm inside your girl all over the world. My name is Corona. Well, I, you know, I gotta say. What happens next? <laughs> what happens next is I need more whiskey. Okay. Um.